We are continuing in our series in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. We are in Acts chapter 2 this morning. We'll be there in just a second on page 911 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. We have been walking through the book of Acts and talking about how Acts is a book. The story of Acts is a story of transformation. And especially right here in these first chapters, these first two chapters, we begin to see how the disciples, particularly, are changed, are transformed, how they go from, from disciples who are, are scared and, and deny Christ. Peter denies Christ at his, at his trial um, when he's arrested. Uh, they, they run for fear. They, they head home after Jesus' crucifixion and go back to what they were doing before, fishing on the shores. They transform from those disciples into these powerful preachers, this strong body of believers that we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 2. And I don't want to review all of that. You can certainly go back and look at it, but, but I, we have to know that as we get to the end of chapter 2, chapter 2 is all about the day of Pentecost, the day that, that the disciples gathered in that upper room, that the Holy Spirit came and showed up in that room, physically showed up, came as a sound of a wind, came as a fire that was dancing on the heads of the believers, how they had a, a soul-satisfying filling that day, how they then began to speak languages that they did not know, um, that, but that everyone that was there, gathered there from all of these other countries, could hear the message, could hear what God was doing in their own native tongue. God was doing all of those things, and, and they began to, to question, some of the leaders of the church began to, to question and say, what does this mean? What is happening? And some of them even make fun of the disciples and say, they must be too filled with wine, they must be drunk for them to, to be doing all of these things. And Peter, what we looked at last week in chapter two was Peter's response then to those leaders. Peter responds and says, they are not drunk, but this is what's happening. And he begins to share his first message in the book of Acts. Peter answers those critics with scripture right away, quotes from Joel and quotes from the Psalms, pointing them back to the Old Testament promises that God had already made. Peter points to Jesus and says, this is the Son of God. This is the man that you crucified. We know, we've seen it. We're all proof of his resurrection. We have seen him at work. And then Peter gives opportunity for repentance. And we read there in chapter two that 3,000 people came to find hope in Christ that day. Last week I, I shared with you, why, why does that matter? Why does it matter to us what Peter preached? Why would we spend a whole week just looking at Peter's message? Why does it matter to us what happened on Pentecost that day? And I shared with you a story that came from Numbers 11 as we looked back at the Old Testament. If you remember that story, it was the story of Moses being overwhelmed by the work that, that, had, been coming, that had been given to him. All of the people of the Israelites were coming to him, trying to have him settle disputes, asking him for leadership and guidance. He was God's spokesman to the Israelites. And Jethro, his father-in-law, says, Moses, you have to find another way. This is going to wear you out. This is going to kill you. You have to find another way to do this. And so God raised up 70 other men and poured his spirit out on those 70 men. And they, too, then, 
were prophets of God. They began to speak for God. God began to speak through them to the Israelites. And in the midst of that story, in Numbers chapter 11, there's a place where, where Moses sees this happening, and Moses says in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29, he says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Why does this matter for us that the spirit of God is poured out on the believers on Pentecost Sunday? Why does it matter for us what Peter is preaching? It matters because God has called us to help to carry the load, that God has called us to be prophets that this dream that Moses has in Numbers 11 comes true in Acts chapter 2. And God calls us and gifts us with his spirit so that we might encourage and sharpen and exhort and train and pray for each other. That he puts his spirit in us so that we might preach to ourselves and preach to those around us. It won't all be a sermon where you're standing on the temple courts like Peter or on the platform here like I am. But we all have opportunity to carry that load. And when we do that, we want to point to the word. Let scripture be the primary speaker in the lives of people. We want to point to Jesus because there's hope in no other name. And we want to give people opportunity for repentance. We want them to know that there is a place for them to put their sin and that God has taken it on Christ. So we shared all of that. And then we come here to the end of Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two concludes with a picture then of what happens to those 3,000 believers and more, as we're about to read. What happens to those early believers? What do they look like? What do they do? What does their life change look like for them? This is a passage, I think, that, that pastors probably both love and hate. There's a part of my preparation this week where I, I'm reading through this and thinking about things that I want to say to you, and, and I think, hmm, I get to say some things that I've always wanted to say. And then there's a part of me that says, oh, I need to be really careful about what I say. I don't want to, I don't want to say too much. I don't want to step on toes. I don't want to, I don't want to, to put myself in the middle of this. I want God's word to speak. And so we're trying to bridge that gap this morning. We're trying to walk that line a little bit. Acts is both prescriptive and descriptive. I've shared that a couple times as we've walked through this. And we'll see that in this passage here in chapter two as Luke begins to describe to us what happened with the early church. Let's read together. In Acts chapter two, we're gonna begin in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. One commentator 
said in the midst of this passage that there was all kinds of miracles that happened on the day of Pentecost as the Spirit comes and as the disciples speak and people hear in their native tongue as 3,000 come to faith that day as Peter shares. But this commentator said the, the last miracle of Pentecost that we read about is this one here in the end of chapter two. It's the formation of the early church. It's the unity of believers. And he said the reason that I know this is the last miracle that we talk about on that day is because I know people, he says. I know people, and people do not join together in unity. People are inherently selfish. We're inherently about ourselves. We are inherently users of other people unless, unless something comes on us or someone comes on us and changes us. The early church is a example, is an example of a miracle. And so this morning I want to talk about that miracle. What happens to those 3,120 people who are changed on that day of Pentecost? Well, first off, we know that many of those 3,120 people, they probably soon after this returned home, they were from all over. If you remember, the map that we showed that day um, showed all over the area of the known world at that time, people had come and gathered in Jerusalem to hear this story, that God had gathered them and brought all of this to fruition at the exact right moment so that the whole world would hear And so many of them probably returned home, but many also stayed in Jerusalem. And so this passage, we can assume, talks directly about those that stayed in Jerusalem. What did they do? What did they become? We find in Luke's teaching here, in Acts chapter 2, that they were devoted to four main things, according to verse 42. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to to the fellowship, they were devoted to the breaking of bread and they were devoted to the prayers. Those four things I wanna look at this morning for a couple of minutes. But I don't wanna run by that very first word, that they were devoted. Devoted is a, is a strong word, a word that talks about being committed to, being, being um, intentional about, being dutiful about, working at. The early church was devoted to these things. They did not come to them easily. They did not come to them casually, but they were devoted. They had found something that they loved and they treasured it. We get the feeling that it wasn't something, this is not something in Acts chapter two that they added on to their already busy lives, but this is a transformation. Again, that picture, a transformation of who they were to who they are now. And that's why Luke shares it with us in this way. They were devoted to these things. So let's look. What were they devoted to? He tells us first that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And we've already seen that. We're not surprised by that. We've already seen that Peter, Peter, as he has led the church, he has been teaching from Scripture from the Word. 
early on before, as soon as Jesus ascends into heaven, Peter comes and he says, there's this spot that Judas left, the 12th disciple spot. We need to fill that. And he, and he walks them through scripture about how it is that God has called them and led them to fill that spot. Peter, again, as we talked last week, he, he right away jumps into pointing to Scripture, and the church looks to Peter, to the Apostle Peter, as the primary teacher, the primary leader in these early days. The Scripture, the Word, was important to those early believers. The early church was committed to the Word that they had, which was the Old Testament. That's the place that Peter continues to point back to, but they were also committed to the apostles' teaching because the apostles were the ones that would continue, I think, in those times, talking about the teachings of Jesus. They weren't all written down yet. They weren't all gathered together in a book. They weren't all in a spot where someone else could reference them. Instead, the apostles, the one who had been there from the beginning, the apostles began to share the things that Jesus had taught. They began to apply the things that Jesus had taught to the Old Testament teachings. And so, the early church gathered around the apostles, not just Peter, but I think all of the apostles, to listen to what they had to say, to understand what they were trying to explain, to latch on to their memories of what Jesus shared and why. They were committed, they were committed to the apostles' teaching. They were committed to the word. And as we walk through this passage and we begin to think about ways that God used and designed the early church, and we begin to try to apply them to us here at Richland, the obvious question for us has to be, are we also, are we also devoted in the same way to the word, to the apostles' teachings, to what God has given us in his word? Are we devoted to it both as individual believers and as a united body of Christ. Is God's word, is this scripture, is this the primary source for us, for encouragement, for strength, for guidance, for direction? Is it the primary place that we go to for hope? The apostles' teaching is what the early church was devoted to. And we want that to be our primary source as well. I hope that our ministries at Richland are about the word. I hope that they have the main part of everything that we do. I hope that that's true here on Sunday morning. And in fact, you've seen in these last weeks that, that I am trying, I am working to bring us into lots of different places in the scripture, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, in the benedictions and call to worship. I want us to be bathed in scripture all through it. I want us to be immersed into it. I want our ministries to be that as well. Sunday schools and Bible studies and clubhouse classes and youth group on Wednesday night. I want our group gatherings to be about the word. And I hope that they are. I hope that you also are using the word. One of the things that we do on Sunday morning, one of the things that I do is, is, is I try to read from the word. And, and it makes me bring out my, my new cheaters that I've been picking up lots and pairs of because I can't always seem to find them. 
It's the only way I can read these small letters. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I also have it printed out. It's, it's on my message here on the pulpit. It's easier for me to read it off that. But I, I want to be in the Word, and I want you to see me in the Word. I want you to be in the Word as well, even if it means that we have to find cheaters. And there's lots of ways for you to do that. I've just listed a couple of them on my sheet here. I, I, hope, I hope that you have a Bible. I hope that you physically have a Bible. We use the ESV version here on Sundays. Um, that, would, that would be the cleanest way for you to follow along with where I'm sharing from and the scripture that we have on the screen. But you can use any Bible. But I hope you physically have a Bible. If you don't, we would be happy to provide one for you. If you're looking to buy a Bible, the ESV Study Bible is a great one for you to purchase and to have the notes that are in the Study Bible, I think would be helpful for you. If you're looking for one for your family, we, there, there's uh, Crossway has ESV Bibles for all ages. And so there's some that are specifically designed for youth, there's some that are designed for older elementary students, and some that are designed for younger elementary students who are just able to read. And all of those, I have several of those copies in my, in my office if you'd like to look at them. They are excellent, excellent versions and ways to get into the Word. And so I hope that you might use one of those. I hope if you don't have a Bible that, and you aren't able to purchase one and don't want to pick one up from us that you might even use or take one of the Bibles right there in the pew ahead of you. That's why we give you the number on Sunday morning. It's on the screen each week. I, sometimes it's easiest to see it there, but I hope that you're using an actual Bible, that you can see the context of where we're at. You can also use apps, and I've talked about this in the past. Um, there's several apps for your phone that might be helpful for you as you walk through the Word. U version has one, Y-O-U version. It has lots of different readings and, and plans to help you read along. That's, that's a one that I use often. There's also a Faith Life Study Bible app. Uh, one of the neat things about that Bible app is that if you have your, your location logged into that app, when, whenever you come to church here at Richland, you can open up that app and it will have bookmarks um, on, the, on the screen as soon as you open it, at least it did for me as I tried it out this week again, uh, where you can see the scripture that's on the screen. You can just hit the bookmark on the, on the screen of your phone and it will bring up whatever scripture is on our screen will also then come up on your screen. You can follow the church presentation and see all of the different scriptures that might come up that day uh, just by tapping on it on your phone. There's lots and lots of ways, lots and lots of ways for you to be in the word. And I hope that you are. As I said earlier, this is the primary means that God uses for us to know him. It's the primary means that God uses for us to know the gospel. It's the primary means that we have to grow in our faith. And so I hope that you're using these things. I think we have to have a question, even as we read through this passage in Acts. Are there moments, as in verse 43, where awe comes upon our soul as we gather together and look at the word? Are there moments when awe comes upon our soul? And I'm grateful that in these past weeks, even some of you have, have come to me several times and, and, and we've talked about ways that we see, specifically ways that we see the unraveling of the curse 
from the Old Testament into the New Testament, how we see ways that, that Jesus has fulfilled many of the promises that were found in the Old Testament, how God unravels the curse that came in Genesis chapter three all throughout the scripture and how he is continuing to do that now. There are moments, awe moments or aha moments where we hopefully are, are in these pews where we're reading this word and we're saying, oh, that's new. That's different for me. That makes sense. That, uh, things begin to line up together because of our commitment to being in the word, that the word leads us and guides us. I hope that we, like the early church, are devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the word of God. Luke tells us that the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, but also devoted to the fellowship. Also devoted to the fellowship. And I think many of us, probably as we read that, think, oh, good. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the word, but they were also devoted to the cookie time in the fellowship hall after church or before church, before Sunday school, the donut time. And that is part of what fellowship is. But it's much, much more than that. And as you read through this passage again, you see there are times when they break bread together, when they eat meals together in each other's homes. That's an important part of fellowship. We'll talk about that in just a second. But it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. It was believers gathering together for the expressed and known commitment to one another's good a commitment to one another's soul. It's not just a time of snacks together where we talk about the weather, but a time where we look out for one another's hope in Christ. In the early church, there would not have been such a thing as a churchless believer. These 3,120 people that first heard and experienced the Holy Spirit there on Pentecost, they would not have run off and, and been all by themselves if there would have been any way to be around that. They would not have been alone. They would have been together. It would have been unthought of for them to be a churchless believer. This passage we see is all about togetherness. They talk about togetherness. They, they believed together. They cared for needs together. They attended temple together. They ate meals together. They praised God together. All of these things were about them being together. And it even says at the end of the passage that they did it day by day. Not Sundays and Wednesdays, but day by day they were together. That was their fellowship that they were devoted to. There's a couple of questions that come out of this. In fact, a couple of questions that you've brought to me as we've looked, knowing that this passage is coming or that a couple other passages talk about similar things in the book of Acts are coming. They gave all that they had, it says. They sold all their possessions and their belongings. They distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Many of you, I think, probably have this question. I know some of you brought it to me. Does this promote communism, or were they all part of a commune, a commune together, living together? What, what's, what's the truth about that? 
And the answer is no. It does not, does not promote communism or even promote living together in a commune together. Even in this passage, we see that they had their own homes that they gathered in. Later in the book of Acts, we see several places. Uh, chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we'll get to in, in a little bit. In that story, we see that they owned property and, and, and were willing to sell it and didn't have any requirement. There was no requirement by the church to give that property or the, the funds from that property away. Um, in fact, Ananias was chastised because he pretended that he was giving all of it away. So we see that ownership, Paul later talks about gathering together in people's homes that they have their own individual properties and rights. It's not about communism, but it's about sacrifice. It's about generosity. It's about life change being evident in every part of our lives. There's a a letter that was, that was written in about 125 A.D., so about 100 years after the death of Jesus, after the beginning of the early church. It was written from, from Aristes to the emperor Hadrian, and I just want to read it to you. I'm going to go to the glasses here so that we can get it exactly right. This is the quote that he's sharing about the church. He says, If one or other of them have bondmen and bondwomen or children... Through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. And they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. They deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. When they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him who carefully sees to his burial. If one of them, and if one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of the Messiah, All of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is one among them, any that is poor or needy, and if they have no spare food, they will then fast for two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. This description is the kind of church that we want to be. We want to be generous and sacrificial. We want to be gospel-centered. We want to be caring about one another. We want to be devoted to the fellowship. So what does that look like for us at Richland? What does that mean for us as a body? What does that mean for you and I? It means that we gather together well. That we we gather together together with intentionality when we come. There was, I don't think, we don't find any reference to church ninjas in the early church. Those who sneak in to the sanctuary, sneak into the gathering and sneak out without connecting with anyone. We don't want to be church ninjas. We want to come with intentionality. We want to 
meet with one another. We want to connect with one another, and we want to connect at a heart level. It's okay. It's okay to talk about the weather. It's okay to talk about the things that have happened in the last week or the things that are coming up in this next week, but it's so much more than that. We want to be intentional about our time together. We want to gather together in large body gatherings. Sometimes that will look like cookie and donut times. It will look like potlucks. It will look sometimes, it will look sometimes like things that you do not want to go to. And yet I think we're called to be a part of that. It goes back to that idea that we are transformed and changed. Not selfish, but selfless in the way that we do it. We show up at potlucks and pancake feeds. I've been encouraged. I've been encouraged these last days as some of you have even come to me and talked about ways that we might be able to gather together as a church body or even as smaller groups of the church body so that we might encourage one another. I hope, I hope that that's your prayer. I hope that we'll do it as families, as smaller groups getting together. It doesn't always have to be our whole church together. It doesn't have to be one big, giant, large gathering. But it's okay for smaller gatherings to happen and families to get together. I hope that it even happens for you one-on-one, that there is someone else in this body of believers that you gather together with to pray over, to encourage each other, to share, to eat, to drink coffee, that you might reach out to each other so that you might pray and praise and talk about Jesus. We want to be a church that's devoted to fellowship in all kinds of ways. The early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and Luke tells us that they're also devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread shows up twice in this passage. One time, it shows up talking about eating together at each other's homes, a physical meal that they had. But commentators tell us that this first reference to breaking bread specifically deals with communion, to sharing in communion together, that they would have done that regularly and often as a church. And it would make sense because Jesus implemented communion. That Jesus, when he gathers those disciples together, the apostles together, on the night before he's crucified, on the night before his trial, he says, this is my body and this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, of course, they would, have re- they would have continued to do that. They were focused on Jesus. They had early, the early church had a radical commitment to the word, but they knew that the fulfillment of that word was the person of Jesus. He would have been their primary focus. It would have been about him. And so they gathered together to break bread. They gathered together to celebrate in what we call communion together. And they did it regularly, and they did it often. We also want to celebrate communion regularly and often. Our tradition is to do it once a month at this point. Try to do it on the first Sunday of the month. And why do we do it in the way that we do it? Why do we break bread together? We do it so that we might point to Jesus. We do it so that we have an every single time reminder that it was Jesus' body that we hold, 
It's Jesus' body that bore our shame. It's a reminder of Jesus' blood in the juice that covers our sin. That Jesus' death was for us. That he became sin who knew no sin so that we might, so that we might have the righteousness of God. They were devoted to the breaking of bread and we want to be devoted to it as well. We want to do it repeatedly, monthly at this place, at this time. We do it repeatedly so that we might show our continued dependence upon Jesus. We do it, we do it with our head bowed to reflect our repentance. We take communion then with our eyes raised in gratefulness for his continued work on our behalf. We do it elbow to elbow. Now our practice has been to take it from the front and to walk up and gather the elements together. We do it elbow to elbow, side by side, to be reminded not just of his work in us, but his work in others and those around us, and to be reminded of our continual need for one another. We want to be a church that is committed, devoted to breaking bread together. The early church is committed to those three things, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and then lastly, Luke says in verse 42, that they were devoted to prayer, to prayer. And we see that not just in Luke's teaching right here in Acts chapter two, but it's throughout all of the book of Acts. More than 20 times in the book of Acts, Luke talks about prayer, about the church praying together. There's a few solo references of prayer, but mostly it's corporate, church-wide prayer times together. Luke knew that prayer was the primary focus of the early church, and that was what he wanted to get across as he shared in the book of Acts. Even in Luke's gospel, he focuses on prayer. He shows that Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed at the start of his ministry. Jesus prayed before his healings. Before he chose the 12, he prayed in Luke chapter 6. Before the transfiguration, even, even as Jesus dies on the cross in the book of Luke, as you read the story, a prayer is on his lips as he goes. Prayer was important to Jesus, and prayer was important to the early church. Prayer is the engine that drives the church, and we want it to be the engine that drives our church as well. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for Dave as he's been leading his Sunday school class, both this, this quarter that he's currently in as well as the summer, as he's been leading us to know better how and why to pray. I'm grateful for his commitment to helping us learn how to pray. I'm grateful, I'm grateful for Lyle Palmer, who came to me a few weeks ago and said that he wanted to send out a letter to, to many in our church who were not able to gather here on Wednesday nights, but he wanted to give them a list of ways and people that they might pray for virtually on Wednesday night when they're not here and we are, ways that they might be able to pray over those ministries. I'm grateful for those things. I'm grateful for the ways that God is raising up prayers in our church. And I hope that we might be continually 
continue to be intentional about praying together. That we might be intentional about ways personally that we pray, but also with others and in our families and in groups, in our Bible studies together, in our classes, that prayer might be a hallmark of who we are at Richland. That we might be a church and a people that are devoted to the prayers. Luke said that the church, early church, was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers, and then he shares how transformative those things were to everything that they are. There's probably lots more, probably lots more that I wanted to say this morning, probably, probably less that you wanted to hear this morning than what I've already shared. But I hope that this that we're reading here in Acts chapter two that we're talking about as a church, that this is true for us as well. That we wanna be devoted to his word, that we wanna be devoted to building each other up in the fellowship. That we wanna be devoted to sharing and pointing to Christ together in communion. And that we wanna be devoted to praying together. The worship team is gonna come, they are coming. They're gonna lead us in worship this morning as we sing, as we close. My hope is that those things will resonate with you. That as you read through Acts chapter two and think about the early church, that you might be strengthened and convicted, challenged and hopeful in what God is calling us to and who he's calling us to be. Will you stand with me this morning as we sing? the Son of God. None can stand before His majesty. Beautiful beyond our highest thought. Worthy, He is worthy. Holy, holy, who is the Word made our pain and poverty come to claim the rebel and the wretch worthy he is worthy all glory and honor all power and praise be to your name be to your name for no your name.
your name holy holy none beside you greatly to be praised holy holy lord almighty worthy is your name pray this morning that you might help us to be together so that we might declare well the name of Jesus as the body of Richland Church. That you might help us, God, to be devoted to your word, to be devoted to fellowship and together, to be devoted to Jesus Christ, and to be devoted to prayer. You might help us in those things. Our benediction this morning comes from Romans chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together we may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.